from St. Matthew's Gospel. And Herod said to the Magi, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, and I too may come and worship him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. Happy New Year. Happy uh, Feast of the Epiphany. Well, it's actually not the Epiphany. The Epiphany was yesterday, the 6th, the 12 days of Christmas, right? Ended yesterday with the Feast of the Epiphany. So you can put aside those geese a-laying and those 12 partridges in their pear trees because we're going to move from Christmas into the season of the Epiphany, which is about a very specific thing. Epiphany, apophneos, means to shine forth. And so in the season of Epiphany, what we see is how Jesus reveals himself to other people and how they react to him. It's an, important, it's an important little season, all four weeks of it, how Jesus reveals himself and how people react to him. And I'm going to say this, and it might shock you, but it's true, that Jesus Christ is the most divisive person in all of human history. Jesus Christ is the most divisive person in all of human history. And it might sound funny to you, sitting in the pew of a church, well, because you've drank the Kool-Aid, as they say, you're a Christian. But for most people, the the claims of Christianity are not only overly restrictive on their personal freedom, but they're just ridiculous. I'll, I'll give you an example. Jesus claims about himself that he is God, that he was preexistent before all time, that he made all things, and that he came to earth, sent by God to save you and I from our sins. That claim is either true or so insanely ridiculous and terrifying that people will go to extremes, to great lengths, to get rid of him, to silence that crazy Jew from Nazareth, which of course is precisely what they did 30 years later. On a hill outside of Jerusalem. Even today, nothing's changed. Even today, our, our culture is terrified of him. In fact, in case you missed it, I missed it, I had other, I had other plans, but this past year, in 2023, the American Atheist Convention was held in Phoenix. Anybody go? I didn't go either. And they had as their speaker a a man named Dr. Bradley Onishi. Full disclosure, I know nothing about this person, except for the title of the book which he read as the keynote speaker. Dr. Onishi is the keynoter at the American Atheist Convention, and here is the title of his book and his lecture. You ready? Preparing for War, the Extremist History of Christian nationalism, and what comes next. <laughs> I'll be honest with you all, I know a lot of church people, as they say, I'm in, I'm in the business, right? I know a lot of church people, I do not know any Christian nationalists. In fact, I'm not even sure I know what that is, except for one thing, an a epithet to use against people to cause division and sow discord and sow hate and anger and fear. Here's the point. My point is that Jesus, friends, is a divisive figure. Sheep and goats. People love him or people hate him. And we're going to look at that today. 
on this feast of the Epiphany, these wise men, and the reactions, if you will, of Herod on the one hand and the wise men on the other. These social elites of the first century, Herod and the wise men, three points about what happens when you meet Jesus. Either you fear him, point one, you love him, point two, and what's the difference? Either you love him or you hate him, why? So first thing, before we get into the why people hate him, why Herod and lots of other people hate Jesus, and I'm using a strong word on purpose, and you'll see why in a moment. Matthew says that the wise men, the magi, come from the east looking for a new king. Magi is the word uh, magi. It's a, uh, what is a magi? It's, they're not, it's kind of funny. We three kings from Orient are. Well, they're not kings. There weren't three of them, and they're not from the Orient. So I don't know. I've got to rewrite that hymn. But the, the magi are from probably Persia. They are probably Zoroastrian priests or clergy. We don't really know exactly. But the point is the Magi are not kings, but they are emissaries. They are people who work for said king. They're advisors. They're the king's cabinet. And the important point about these Magi is they are super high educated. They are Ivy Leaguers, or what used to be known as the Ivy League, in terms of having, you know, um, privilege and so forth, but they're, they're at the top of the heap, right? These magi are people that are sent out by the king to forge relationships, to build uh, camaraderie, to bring gifts and greetings to new, realer, re, new rulers. And they are trained in something called astrology, which is to look at the stars and see how they move. They see a star moving in the sky. They say, that's rising. Let's follow it and see what it's trying to tell us. Now, full disclosure, astrology doesn't work, right? Horoscopes are a lie. So if you use a horoscope, don't do that anymore because <laughs> they're not true. Then the universe, the universe doesn't have a brain. There's no mind to it. It is gas and emptiness and full of death and destruction. The universe does not care a whit about you or me. But God can still use these things to reveal his will. God used what these wise men knew to draw them to him. And they arrive at Herod, and we see the first response to Jesus. That is the response of fear. So the wise men, they go to Herod in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Well, they're searching for a king. Well, if you're looking for a king, where do you go? If you're looking for the president, where do you go? The White House. You're looking for the king. You go to the king's palace. Where is the king's palace? In Jerusalem. So that's where they go. The star leads them there, and they arrive at the king's palace, and they mention this arrival of this new king. Okay, great. But there's a problem. Houston, we've got a problem. Because there already is a king of the Jews. There's already a king there. In fact, he's the one that they meet with. The wise men meet the current king and say, where's the new king? And the king says, new king? What are you talking about? I'm the king. His name is Herod. So actually his last name, his family name. Later on, Herod's son is the one who presides over the execution of Jesus as an adult. But the point is, Herod the Great, Herod the First, is also called Herod, listen, the king of the Jews. Herod is one of those guys in, in history that was mo moderately successful, a bit of a train wreck, and as a result made up for his incompetence with just pure, utter power. That's how politicians work, by the way. He rules from 36 BC to, uh, to 4 AD, and he was paranoid. 
He was cruel. In fact, Herod was so cruel and so paranoid, he had several of his family members, his wife and four of his children, murdered to protect his throne. Caesar Augustus, right, the guy who runs the entire Roman Empire, in a side comment said, and I quote this in English, not in Latin, the head of of Rome said, it was better to be Herod's dog than one of his children. So you get the idea. Herod is a, Herod is a, power politician, right? Straight out of Machiavelli. And Herod was put in place by the Romans to keep the peace in Judea. And Matthew says that when Herod heard the news of this new king, the wise men arrived, where's this new king? When he hears it, the English translation of the Bible, which we have in front of us, says that Herod was greatly troubled. Can I tell you something? Has anybody here gotten really, really bad news and said, boy, I'm deeply troubled. I've never, I've never said that in my life. The Greek word there, by the way, that what you're reading is an English translation of the original Greek. We have the Greek. This idea that Dan Brown floats, that the Bible's been retranslated and lost is just false. But the Greek there for deeply troubled is a Greek word, terazzo. And it means, wait for it, it means rage. You ever seen somebody so angry that they shake? So, that, you've seen it. You you know what I mean. When I do that, you know exactly what I mean. That's terrazzo. That is what Herod feels when he hears about this king. He is enraged. Why? Why? Because everything Herod had worked for was under threat. Herod's a Roman puppet. He's a false leader. He knows it. Everybody else knows it. Crowds jeer at him at baseball games. Let's go, Herod, whatever. And so Herod, he knows that a new king, a real king, will, listen, he knows, Herod knows, and this is always true, that this new king, Jesus, will radically change his life. Let's stop there for a second and ask this. What happens to a person when things change radically? And put Herod aside from me. Put put yourself in the seat, right? What happens to a person when the old way of doing things no longer works? When something happens to you or someone that you love where the world collapses, where the bottom falls out, they say, right? What do people do? Well, they get fearful and they hang on. Some people hold on. They hold on, we say, for dear life try everything in their power to restrain what's inevitable. And that fear, listen, that fear of loss, that fear of change, that fear turns to rage. Terrazzo. Give me an example. I was reading a book this past summer by Tim Keller on forgiveness. I did a one-hour class on it for the men's group if you want to check it out on the website. And in the book, Keller says something I thought was really profound, and it's this. He says, um, when you experience anger in any of its forms, right? And this is good advice. When you experience anger, ask yourself, why? Ask yourself, why are you angry? Maybe you're angry about, I don't know, election interference. Why? Why are you angry? angry? Maybe you're angry about the migrant crisis. Why? I'm not saying you shouldn't be. I'm just saying, ask yourself, why? 
Maybe you're angry that you feel taken advantage of by somebody in your family, or you get in the short end of the stick in a deal that you cut. Why? If you search that, if you search that, you, you will, if you search that anger, you will find, Keller says this, if you dig down, and he's right, you will find fear. Always. Maybe justifiable fear. I'll give you one example on that. In, in, in the New Testament later on, Jesus is in the temple and he's angry and he, he overturns the money tables. Well, what is he angry at? He's angry because he's afraid that people are being taken advantage of. Fair enough. It's, there is righteous indignation. But the point I want you to see here with Herod is that he's angry, listen, because he fears Jesus. He fears what this man is going to do to his life. And fear always leads to anger. And Herod's fear turns to rage. If you don't know, later on in the story, he orders the death, Herod, orders the death of all the male children in the town of Bethlehem under the age of two. The choir is going to sing an anthem about this at the offertory. It's beautiful. Listen to it. But Herod orders the death of all the children, all the male boys under the age of two in Bethlehem. Why? Well, essentially a preemptive assassination of an erstwhile uh, extender to the throne to wipe out this new king before he comes to power. Friends, here's the point I want you to see. Fear can breed tremendous cruelty. Fear can breed tremendous anger. And Jesus changes lives, and fear is a response to change. So why are we surprised? when Jesus shows up, that people get angry. Jesus changes lives then or now. And that change will lead to either fear and anger, or point two, it will lead to love. Matthew tells us, point two, the reaction of love. Matthew tells us, this is the coolest thing. Matthew says in verse 11 that they, the wise men, these, these political elites, right, go into the house. These magi, it says here, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. I mean, picture this. They fell down and they worshipped him. Imagine, imagine, and, and again, just to sort of disabuse you of sort of the notion we have, this, uh, this wise man's caravan was probably 150 people. This is a large gathering of money and people going to visit this new king. And they walk in. These men are the cultural elites of the day. They see a toddler and they fall on the ground and they worship him. I've seen the very spot where this occurred. It's a little cave about 10 feet wide. <laughs> There's no introduction. There's no, hey, I'm, I'm Bob, the wise man from Iran or whatever. There's no greeting. I mean, you can only imagine what's going through Mary's mind at the time. They simply enter and they worship. The Greek word for that word worship, this is super cool, is the Greek word proskuneo. And it's a word which means to see something, maybe this has ever happened to you, and be so overwhelmed with, it's almost hard to describe, overwhelmed with majesty that you can do nothing but fall down. Not in fear, but in awe. And that's what they do. They fall to the ground to bow down before something so profound, so life-changing that all you can do is humble yourself. It's an innate reaction. It's not fear. Maybe it is a little bit of fear. But it's just like, oh, wow, whatever that kid is, I got nothing in front of him. 
But notice something really interesting here. The wise men meet, Herod meets, the, meets Jesus, or the thought of him, hears about him, and he's enraged. The wise men meet Jesus, and they fall down. But notice something I'd never thought about until this past week. This is interesting. The wise men and Herod lost the very same thing. Think about it. The wise men are men of power and influence. They've been humbled. Herod's a man of power and influence, and he's been humbled. These are some of the most powerful, powerful men in the ancient Near East, and these wise men bow down and are humbled by a toddler. But Herod, by contrast, is enraged by the very same thing. Point three, why the difference? Why are some people hate him and some people love him? Well, that's a big question. But I think it really comes down to this. What is the point? What is the goal? What is the end of your life? I mean, think about it. If this life right now is all, if your life is all about this life, then you will do everything and anything in your power to protect it. If this life is all you have in life, you will do everything in your power to protect it. Even the murder of innocent children in China, for example, or Bethlehem, rather. Sorry, not really. <laughs> if you live for this world, you will hold on to the things of this world with a fist so tight that you will do anything you can to stop the change. And you will fear and you will hate Jesus because he stands in your way. See, friends, he always, Jesus' MO is always the same. It's always a call to change. It's always a call to be humbled before him. It's always a call to new life. And you will hate him or you will love him based upon where that life resides for you. I mean, look at, look at history at the great persecutions of the church, the great persecutions against Christians through history. Rome, that's a biggie. That was the first one. But there's more. There's lots more. Stalin, Pol Pot, Khmer Rouge, all governments, all atheist secular governments, all governments that find Christianity reprehensible because it threatens their power. All these governments focus on, will focus on the maintenance of power in this world. They will use power to destroy Christ. They will use power to destroy the church. It will happen again. It will happen again. It's already happening. If the point of this life, friends, is, by, is, the, is this life, then you will use anything in your power to stop anything that threatens it. But if the purpose of your life is to find God, if the purpose of your life is truth, real truth, to live a life that stands for something beyond this world, Jesus will not fill you with rage, but he will fill you with, with awe and with love because he is the answer. Just the other day, I went to donate blood over at One Blood, over by the hospital. Um, and there's a lady at the desk sitting there doing her work, and uh, I didn't have a collar on. I was wearing a T-shirt and shorts, whatever. I went in to go donate blood and give her the paperwork I had to fill out. She's typing me in there, and she has a bracelet on her hand. It's a black bracelet that says, Jesus is the answer. And I looked at her, I said, you know, Jesus really is the answer. She said, I know. She said, I know. Amen. I said, amen. It was pretty cool. And, uh, and I, she said, you know, she says, I just wish more people were willing to listen. Here's the question. Here's, really the, here's the big question about epiphany. 
Who or what is the center of your life? What is your life really all about? Is your life about this life? Or is your life about something bigger? Well, how do you know? How do you know? This might sting, so buckle in. How do you know what your life really is all about? Well, did you notice something really interesting about the wise men? They, uh, they meet Jesus, and they worship him. They fall down. That's the first. No words are spoken. They fall down and worship, and then what do they do next? They give. Don't miss something. You want to know what you really love? What do you give to? I give to my children. I give to my wife. I tithe to my church. I give 10% of my income to my church because I love my church and what we do. Here's something to think about. What if those magi, with all this wealth that they bring with them, what if that money they used at that point when they gave that gold and frankincense and myrrh, which is a lot of money, all that money they used, what if that money was used for Jesus' earthly ministry later on? I bet it was. He's a carpenter, he's a stonemason, whatever he did. If those wise men, what if they had, they were generous in their giving. What if, that, what if that money that they gave him was money he used in his ministry to preach the gospel? What if they hadn't? What if, what if those wise men had restrained? What if they hadn't given? What if it would have prevented Jesus from doing his ministry? What if the church was never launched? Guess what? You and I would be damned. Friends, we give to what we love. Because the work of Jesus is the most important work on this earth, to save souls, to bring those who want to know him to him, to baptize, which we're going to do in a moment. So here's my question for you. You want to know what you love? Well, do you give generously to the work of this parish? Do you tithe 10% of your income to the life of this church? I do, and many of you do, I know that. Because whatever you spend your money on, that is what you love. Jesus says this. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will go. It's true for most people. We'd rather let somebody else do the heavy lifting. It's your money after all, right? Well, be careful. Be careful. That was Herod's line of thought too. See, friends, when you meet Jesus, there's only two choices. I mean, you could ignore him, but by ignoring him, you really hate him. When you meet Jesus, you cannot help who want to support his ministry with everything you have. Then and now, it really depends on one question, and that's this. Where does your hope lie? On the things of this world or in the things of God? Herod, the wise men, me, and you. That very choice is before all of us today. That very choice is a choice we're all called to make. That very choice is the choice that JP has made. I'm going to baptize him in a moment. Fear or love. That's our choice. Shall we pray? Father, teach us the circumstances of our lives that draw you, draw us to you. Help us to see the fear in our lives for what it is and respond rather with joy and love at your plan for us. Help us to be generous in our support of your, the ministry here. Help us to give to what we love. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.